It's great to be here with you this morning as we continue in our series, His Name. We're looking at eight of the 32 names of God, at least 32 names of God, that are given to us in the Old Testament. And as I, I was thinking about the importance of names, I always sort of, my mind drifts back to when my daughter Vanessa was younger and we would head down to Florida and right next door to my parents was a girl that was exactly Vanessa's age and they would go down and we would they would play together and what always sort of amazed me was that Vanessa always called this girl Margaret which was really interesting because her name was Meredith and and she would do that all the time and one time I can remember saying to Meredith you don't have to answer to her if she calls you Margaret anymore and, and, and all of a sudden, Vanessa, and she goes, oh, I don't care. And Vanessa says, hey, Margaret, let's go do this. And there they are. They went off. And, and, and so when I think of the importance of a name, I'm thankful that God knows our name. <laughs> like he knows our name. He knows who we are. Uh, he knows us even better than we know ourselves. And, and, and yet he gives us his availability through his word to know him. And, and he gives us these descriptive names in the Old Testament so we know him more intimately. We know who he is. We know the work that he offers us and the work that he desires to do in our life. And one of the names of God is Jehovah M. Kadesh, which Jehovah, of course, is a Latinized or a Germanized version of the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so Jehovah M. Kadesh means the Lord who sanctifies us. The Lord who sanctifies us speaks of this amazing work that's done in Christ and continues in our life through the Holy Spirit and will be completed when Christ returns. And we find this, this, this name of God in Levit- Leviticus 28. Leviticus 28 reads, Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. I am Jehovah and Kadesh. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. And, and so let's look at sort of where's this verse in context. Well, in Leviticus 18 and 19 uh, we find a, a bunch of laws, a bunch of laws uh, of practices that the people of Israel were not supposed to participate in. They're evil practices. And then in chapter 20 in Leviticus, we find that there's writings about what is the consequence of breaking these laws. And I think it's really important for us to remember that the same God who declared these precepts, the same God who declared these laws, is the same God who declared the penalties. And so it's so important that we understand that, that, that God wants to reveal himself through the law of the Old Testament. But it's also important we understand there's three laws in the Old Testament. So we as, as believers today can understand when we're looking at the Old Testament, what exactly are we looking at? And so there's three laws. There's civil laws, ceremonial law, and moral law. And so when we look at the Old Testament, there's civil law. And in Leviticus 18 and 19, uh, there's a civil law that God is, is writing, having written for the people of Israel. It's written for a particular people at a particular time. It, it, it's, their, it's their laws. It's their speed limits. It's the things that we have in our culture today. And it was given to them for that specific purpose of making sure that as this new nation, they understood how they were to, to live together and to be a light into the world around them. And then there's ceremonial law. Ceremonial law are all the laws that deal with sort of how they were to purify themselves. And of course, the sacrificial system. And, and, and the ceremonial law points to Jesus, points to our relationship with him. The civil law is not for us. It was for them. The ceremonial law isn't for us. It was for them. In this sense that Jesus, the Lamb of God, paid the price once and for all. We don't need to make any sacrifices. By the way, that's a good thing. And then the third law is the moral law. The moral law still applies to us as written today. The Ten Commandments, for instance, is the moral law. 
Now, in all three of these laws, God portrays his character. He lets us know who he is, what he cares about, and also who we can become in him. And so as believers who live in 2023, we don't need to look at all the Old Testament laws, especially the civil laws, and say, well, we need to do things the way they did it, and these should be the consequences because it was theirs. We need to understand that. But in 2023, we should still, as believers, want to see just laws handled justly. And we do this with this caveat. We do this while keeping in mind that the main call upon followers of Christ is to make disciples. And our primary tools are scripture, prayer, love, and testimony. And so here we are, Leviticus 18 and 19, pointing to to, to what's right, what's wrong. Chapter 20, talking about what are the consequences of, of participating in these evil acts. And so in verse 20, leading up to the verse I just read to you, in the first five verses, we find that God talks about the consequences of, of child sacrifice. That God is a defender of those who can't defend themselves. He's a defender of all of us. And so he writes about this, has written about this evil practice of, of child sacrifice where they would have this false god, Moloch, and they would have this metal, this, this image that they would heat up, red stoking hot, and they would place live children in the hands of this false god in sacrifice. That's what the cultures were doing. And God says, I forbid such practices. People who practice such adultery, he says, are vile, and, and their presence in the camp in Israel was, was not acceptable because it would lead people away from God and profane his holy name. Idolaters weren't tolerated because our influence could spread. And also we need to understand that, that our God, the true God, is so different than any of the false gods, especially Moloch. God is loving and needs no appeasement. And when you think about it, what, what God is also declaring about himself through these laws is all the other nations were worshiping gods who, who, who needed these crazy appeasements, these evil appeasements, in order to, to be in their right and right standing before them. And God says, I need no such things. God's a life-giving God. God helps the helpless, especially children. And wrap your mind around this one. God selflessly prohibited human sacrifice, instead sacrificed himself on our behalf. That's the God we serve. That's the God who reveals himself to us in scripture. Now let me let me look at verse 6 with you. In verse 6, it, it speaks out against going to a fortune teller. How many of you like to know your future? As believers, we may not know our future, but we certainly knows the, know the one who does. God knows our future. And what he does in his word is provide a, a pattern of living that allows us to head into his preferred future for us in a way that allows us to flourish. We may not know our future, but we know the one who does, and we trust in him. See, the good news is that God has given us the Bible as, as, that allows us to acquire the information we need to walk in this abundant life offered us in Jesus Christ. And so we have all these passages that are leading up to, to Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 through 8, and then we read, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. I am the Lord your God. Keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I'm the Lord, Jehovah M. Kadesh. I'm, I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. And what amazes me is that even amidst the list of capital crimes, 
God graciously offers this encouragement to live morally, which is motivated by his own holiness and only made possible because of his workings in our life. In fact, the motivation beyond every aspect of Israel's laws was that the people would demonstrate themselves to be God's people. That God is, is giving these laws so that the people of Israel can stand out among the other nations so they can be drawn to God through them. In fact, God desires to bless Israel so they can be a blessing. And guess what, believers? God blesses us as his followers, not just to bless us so that we can be what? A blessing for others. So we can live in such a way that people can be pointed to Jesus. And an interesting thing to me is that holiness is not presented as something merely achieved by human effort, but a state created and given by the power of God. That there's this positional understanding that I've called you out to be a nation. That's what he's saying to Israel. I've called you out to be a nation. I've made you a holy nation. Therefore, live holy. So the call to live different is given because God has made them different. He's saying to them, be who you are. And, and, and follower of Christ, look at me this morning. That's true of us as well. That in Christ, he's made us holy. He's made us right with God. And he says, what I'm asking you to do is live as you are. You don't have to earn what you already are. Just live as you are. God is Jehovah and Kadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. Now, what does it mean? What is, what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is the cooperative work of God and believers by which ongoing transformation to greater Christ-likeness occurs. It's cooperative. It's the work of God in our life, but it's not as if we come to Christ and, and he does his work and we're not a part of it. Have any of you found that true in your Christian life? That becoming like Jesus means we have to walk with him? Maybe you prayed a prayer last night and you said, tomorrow, let me be a lot more patient. And you got up and you weren't. God, help me treat so-and-so a little nicer, you know, and you got up the next day and you, you, you sort of didn't. Now, by the way, have you also noticed when you pray those prayers, he puts you in situations where you have to be patient? <laughs> or that person you want to be nicer to, you're just like, well, maybe God will just make sure, maybe they'll call in sick tomorrow. And then they show up and they put you on a project with them all day. <laughs> Why? Because it's a cooperative work with God. We trust in him, and in those situations, he teaches us how to be patient. He gives us the opportunity to trust him, to allow his love to throw, flow out to us, even those who are hard to love. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know, there's a powerful part of it, from one degree to another. Has anyone found that that's their spiritual journey? Like it's not 50 degrees to another. It's one degree to another. Wouldn't it be nice if you came to Christ and the journey was just like this of becoming like Jesus? But I don't know about you, my journey looks like this a little bit. But it's from one degree to another. When we turn to repentance and faith and look to Christ through the mirror of his word, we are graciously transformed more and more fully into his image by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God operates in the life of a Christian, for instance, by, by convicting us of sin, 
And I've heard some of them say, I don't I want any conviction of sin. Well, it's like, well, then you don't want to walk on the right path because conviction of sin is a gift, church. It's a way of saying you're heading the wrong direction. And it allows us to be able to, to make a, a detour, right, and, and to head to the right direction. It, studying and applying God's word, you know, here's disciplines that God uses to help us grow and become more like Christ, prayer. And we do all this yielding to his spirit. Such maturing transpires particularly through the Holy Spirit and God's word as we read God's word and, and grow and, and say, Lord, help me apply this to my life. And that's why I'm sure if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me say, God uses the word of God we know, not the word of God we don't know to make us more like Jesus. When some, someone says to me, you know, I really want this to happen in my life. I want God to do this. I'm like, well, are, are you in his word? Are you praying? Are you, are you willing to say, I don't have time for God's word. I don't have time to read it. It's another way of saying I don't have time to grow. Right, church? Come on, you're getting quiet on me. But it's such an opportunity that God gives us. From beginning to end, the work of Christ is salvation from sin. Think about that for a minute. From beginning to end, the work of Christ is salvation from sin. He came to do just one work, offer us salvation. He came to solve one problem, sin. So Paul writes in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and, and was raised for our justification. Jesus died for our sins, was raised for our salvation. That this is the work of Christ that he does in us. And our, and our salvation in Jesus Christ then really is, is looked upon from three temporal perspectives. And, and let's sort of take a minute, let, let God wrap your mind around this reality of what he's done in our life as he talks about being the Lord who sanctifies us. That there's, there's a past reality that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins 2,000 years ago, when he died on the cross for our sins and we receive him as Lord and Savior, that past act becomes a reality in our life today. Like he's covered our sins. He's made us right with God. Remember I said with the people of Israel, why did he call them to be holy? Because he had made them holy. He had called them out. He said, you're a holy people, now live holy. And what did Jesus do when he died on the cross and we receive him as Lord and Savior? He makes us holy. Like that's our position. We're holy people. In fact, one of my least favorite bumper stickers I see sometimes is, I'm a sinner saved by grace. You say, why don't you like it? Because it's bad theology. I'm no longer known by God as a sinner. The scripture says I'm known by God as a saint. So the bumper sticker would be really long, but it would have to be worded like this for it to be right. I'm a saint who used to be a sinner, now saved by grace. Like, that's what the scripture teaches. You say, well, Craig, are you saying there's no sin ever in your life since you came to Jesus? None of your business. <laughs> well, of course there is. Of course I'm still growing. Of course there's still things I repent of. But what I'm telling you is scripturally, positionally, in the eyes of God, because of what Jesus did, I'm holy. I'm a saint. Now, by the way, as I like to remind you, don't say to the person next to you, for now on, call me saint whatever. That's just weird. But you're a saint if you're in Christ. That's who you are. Now in the future, the scripture tells us that we'll be glorified. And when Christ returns, the work within us will be, will be finished. Will be complete. How many of you look forward to that day? You won't be God, you'll just be perfectly human. It'd be so much easier to get along with one another when we're perfect. 
But there's a space in between the here and now, and this is the only place we can live today. And today, God is doing a work of making us who we are in him, making us who we are in him be holy because you are holy with the encouragement that one day that work will be finished. Now, I know it's sort of still early and you guys are sort of maybe hungry for lunch, but that's good preaching. Like that's life altering stuff. That we don't have to earn sanctification any more than we could earn salvation. But we do have to cooperate with God. You say, how do you cooperate with God with salvation? When you surrender to Jesus. How do you cooperate with God with sanctification? You surrender to Jesus. You trust in him. I mean, think about it. When we turn to repentance and and turn to God, he offers us this amazing work in our life. He he, he transforms us and and we get this biblical view. We get to be able to stand on this vantage point of biblical revelation. We can look back and see what Jesus has done. We can look ahead and see what he's going to do. And that allows us in the present to say, Lord, I trust you. I'm not perfect, but I'm a work in progress. In fact, have you ever been told you're a piece of work? When someone tells you that, say, yes, I'm God's masterpiece. I'm a work in progress. Still in progress. See, my guess is, like me, most of you can totally relate to the fact that you know you're not what you ought to be, but you thank God you're not what he used to be. You're a work in progress. And so we're called to to be sanctified. Why? Because Christ has sanctified us. We're called to live holy lives. Why? Because in Christ we are holy. That's amazing. Therefore, sanctification is the salvific work of our Lord today in the life of a believer, where we're becoming practically what Christ bought for us positionally on the cross, a work that will be completed when we see Christ face to face. Paul writes about this in in Galatians 2.20. Listen to his words. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I mean, think about it. Through faith in Christ, I have shared in his death and and further than that, his resurrection. I live in him. This life comes from this this faith, this this relationship with God. He, He died for my sins, resurrected for my salvation. I am alive in Jesus because I am in Christ. But what's Paul mean by I no longer live? Paul's not saying he lost his uniqueness when he came to Christ. Think about that. He's not saying that he's not a unique human being with special gifts and a place in God's church and a place in the world. He doesn't say you say yes to Jesus and you just sort of become some type of Christian robot and we're all the same. How boring would that be? No, no, no. He's saying something changed in the way I look at the world, the way I understand my position in the world. And I explain it this way. It may not be the most intellectually profound way of explaining it, but it's the way I get it. Paul is saying that before Jesus, it was all me, me. Me, me, right? You know, as he was looking out for himself, he was doing things his own way. He was walking down his own path. When he looked at situations, the question he would ask, what can I get out of this? What's best for me? It was me, me. It was Paul, Paul. 
And it wasn't working for him. How many of you out there know the me, me life doesn't work for you either? And so he's saying it's no longer I who live because it's no longer me, me, it's me, Christ. And so when I look at a situation, it's not just what, what, what do I get out of this? It's, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? If you've blessed me with all these spiritual blessings, how can I bless others? In other words, the me, me is a self-centered, selfish, it's all about me life. He says, that part is dead and dying. He said, but the part that lives is the part that's me, Christ. It says, Lord, I just want to be a light to those around me. I want to make a difference. And just like our position is holy, and yet we're being made holy, guess what? The me, me is dead, and yet still in play. And so every day until Christ returns, what do we say? Lord, help it be me, Christ, not me, me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we think about this amazing work of God in our life. This amazing gift. It says you don't have to measure up because Christ already did that for you. You're not alone And this is what God is offering you. And you can walk confidently because Christ will complete this work within you. You say, well, what's our response? And I can only think of three. There's probably more, but I can only think of three. What's our response to the Lord who sanctifies us? First, receive Christ as Savior and Lord. So many people refuse to come to God in part because they don't realize what he's done. And once we realize what he's done, I think the only reasonable response is to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I want that life that you've created me for, this relationship that you created me to have with you that allows me to relate much better with others. Second response is to believe, to believe that God makes his spirit and holy character available to us. To trust but he can make us into the people he's created us to be. Isn't that good news? Come on now. Anyone ever been frustrated with themselves? And God says, trust me, walk in this journey of becoming. And by the way, enjoy the journey. Don't try to rush to the next step. Allow him to do the work in you. Grow. Have time to look back. I love when, when Aaron said that the, that the work that we've been doing with Lulu and Gila has been for the past decade. I've been here for coming up on nine years and, and been thinking of just the growth of that ministry from where they started to where they are right now. There's much to celebrate. And yet I love the fact she says, but you know what? There's much more still to do. Is that not a great illustration of every single one of our lives sitting here this morning? That in Christ, wow, look what God has done. And you say, well, I've only been a Christian for a couple of weeks, but look what he's done in a couple of weeks. But how about those of you who've been a couple of years, a couple of decades, you go, wow, look what God has done. But wow, there's still so much more to do. Now we look at it with the same excitement she shared this morning because what a great privilege it is to be invited by God to be on this journey of transformation. And then the last thing is to grow, to apply ourselves, to say, Lord God, help us, help us really put this into practice. Help us cooperate with you. I alluded to earlier that If you don't have time for God's word, don't expect to grow. If you don't have time to fellowship with other believers so you can grow together, don't don't expect to grow. 
If you're not learning how to pray and communicate with God, don't, don't be surprised when you're not hearing from him and aren't growing. And I've been there. I get it. But what a great opportunity to be able to have the Lord grow us. And it, it takes us being committed to him. The people of Israel couldn't just simply say, well, you've made us holy. I guess we'll just sort of do our own thing now. And we as believers can't do that either. Right, church? If you want to get to lunch, make me confident you know what I just said. Right, church? There you go. That sounds better. Sounds better. I mean, think about it. When I came to Jesus, I realized it wasn't just that he would save my soul. It was that he would make me more like Jesus, which meant some things had to change and some things needed to be added. And the spiritual disciplines that we speak of, these means of grace, really, these spiritual disciplines need to be a part of my life. Now, when I say these means of grace, these spiritual disciplines, Bible study, application, prayer, and you can go on and on, meditating on God's word, you know, just serving Christ. All these things are, are means of grace by which he allows us to grow in grace. You may say, well, wait a minute, doesn't grace come from God? And the answer is absolutely. But the means of grace do not work automatically. They're instruments through which we receive grace. And they, they, they're not machines that produce grace. And God is the giver of grace, but we have to grow in it. We have to appropriate it. What's that mean? By appropriating God's grace, it means that we, we take possession of the divine strength made available to us in Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to pray, Lord, make me more patient, and throughout the day we say, by the, by the name of Jesus, you have the power to help me be more patient, and so help me do this. And we're in a situation, we find our patience sort of wavering, and we go, Lord God, give me the strength here. How do I trust you in this? We, we take the time to talk to people who are more patient. We always say, how do you become patient? They say, I don't know. It's sort of more natural. I don't want to talk to you. Hey, how do you get patient? Well, I had trouble with patience. Now I am. Well, teach me how you did that. What steps did you take? What verses did you claim? Strength. I don't have the strength to do what you're calling me to do today, God. Guess what? He does. Lord, help me learn what it means to walk in your strength, not relying on my strength, but relying on you. How many of you know that's a lesson to learn for me over and over and over again? But we can learn it. We can be on that journey with him, but we got to take our walk with God seriously. We can't just come to him for salvation and then just sort of do our own thing. He didn't say to Israel, just go do your own thing. No, no, here's the boundaries. Here's, here's the path to walk the way I've called you to walk. Walk in these things and you'll be blessed. Then you'll be a blessing to others. How many of you think it would be weird if the night after I got married to my wife, Krista, I said to her, hey, I'm a little busy tonight, you know? And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going out on a date. What do you mean you're going on a date? We got married yesterday. Well, yeah, we got married and you're my wife and I love you, but I got a date. That's what I did before we got married and I'm going to do that now. How many of you think that's a recipe for disaster? But think about it. How many times do we do that with Jesus? Jesus, I said yes to you. But I'm going to go back and do the same things I did before I said yes to you. And expect that somehow my life's going to get better. Just a thought. And it's not about guilt. It's about blessing, isn't it? It's about the right path. It's about the best path. Lord Jesus, thank you for the work you're doing in my life. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he's praying. He's with his crew, the disciples. And he says something really unique in that prayer. He says, I'm not just praying for you, I'm praying for those who come after you. 
Do you know who that is? That's us. If you ever want to know what's Jesus' direct prayer for me, go to John 17. And here's one of the things he prayed over us. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, help them confirm to, conform to your word. Help them grow from one degree to another. Help, help them surrender to you so that you can sanctify them so they can be the people who they already are in you and flourish and be blessed to be a blessing. Three questions I think all of us should consider. I'm considering. How will I respond to the scripture's teaching on God's work and willingness to sanctify us? How do we respond to this? Is it a yes? Is it a maybe? <laughs> Are you willing? Do I hunger for the spirit of God to make me holy, to make me more like Jesus? Am I willing to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to grow in greater Christ-likeness? Again, this is an opportunity. This is a blessing. This is the Christian life. A life like no other. It's not easy, but it's best. It allows us to flourish in the mess that's all around us. And this is what I've realized as I look back on those who have gone before us. That past and present multitudes of Christians bear witness that when they put their faith in the promises of Scripture, receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and filled with the Spirit, that they have been cleansed and sanctified. But God doesn't just call us to something he's not willing to do. He calls us to something he wants to do. So the question is, are we willing? And you know what the good thing with God is this morning? That even if you're not, maybe your prayer would be, Lord, would you make me willing to be willing? And he'll start with you there. That God is willing to meet you just where you're at and help you take the next step with him. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he knows you. That's how much he has for you. I want to close this morning by echoing a prayer of Paul. Paul was praying over the saints, the Christians in Thessalonica. And as he prayed for them, he was praying over us. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, here's his prayer for us this morning. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you so much for just the privilege of being here this morning, for being able to put your glory on display. We've heard testimony of the work you're doing in, in Zambia. We've heard testimony, Lord God, of, of baptism that took place last service and what you're doing in the lives of people. We've sang praises to your name. We've looked at your word. I pray, Father God, that we've had conversations with people before this service and that we wouldn't rush out of here, but we'd have conversations with people afterwards. Help us lift each other up in prayer. Help us encourage each other. Help us instruct each other on what it means to live this life that you've called us to. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here, whether on, in this room, over in the chapel, online, who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, that they say yes to you this morning. They say, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for dying for my sins, being resurrected for my salvation. I say yes to you in the journey you have for me. Lord God, help each of us this morning who know you, who are in relationship with you. May we leave here realizing who we are. You know our name. You have sanctified us and you are sanctifying us. We've been made holy in Jesus and we get to continue this holiness process of becoming more and more like him from one degree to another degree to another. Thank you for what you've done in the past. Thank you for what you're going to do in the future. But in the here and now, may we trust you. 
with this growth journey we're on. We love you, Jehovah Kadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. Thank you for loving us so completely. In Jesus' name, amen.